Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, July 24th, we are studying Psalm 120. In today's text, the psalmist cries out to the Lord in distress over those who are attacking with lying lips and a deceitful tongue. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have this regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's a pleasure as always, Pastor Apple. Pastor Roth, let's talk in general about the Psalms. What should we know about the Psalms as a book, as a genre that helps us to approach them correctly as Christians? The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, and um, more than that, of course. But fundamentally, they do teach us how to pray, and they teach us how to pray as Jesus prayed. So thinking about Psalm 22, for example, it is a prophecy of Christ, but also a prayer of Christ. And it, um, the most famous line, of course, is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, you know, when you see Psalm 22 in um, context, the entire psalm actually ends on a note of triumph after suffering. So I would say then that the, the Psalms are a wonderful book, especially for when we're struggling and suffering, because it teaches us to pray as Jesus prayed in his time of need. And uh, we also then have the same promised deliverance or redemption that Jesus has won for us, and he was vindicated by his Father, and so will we be finally. Mm. What, what other ways do the Psalms point to Christ? I mean, not only as the prayers that he would have used, but how else do we see Christ in the Psalms? Yeah, so thinking of Psalm 110, for example, the Lord says to my Lord, and then Jesus invokes that when it, with his famous, who is the son of David, or who is the, the Christ? And so how can the son of David also be David's Lord? So there's Christology, that is the doctrine of who Jesus is, his person and work embedded in there. Um, we've even got such uh, prophecies as the replacement of Judas as one of the apostles, um, let another take his office. Um, you know, things that we wouldn't have expected, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament was able to use. So the Psalms have, were, um, are absolutely crucial to the New Testament, um, and they were, they've been used throughout the history of the Christian church, um, not only for prayer, but also a, a praise. So praise and um, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are the things that Paul tells us to do when we worship. So um, many of the psalms praise the Lord, which of course is alleluia. Um, which, is, which is a refrain throughout the Psalms. Um, so it's an inexhaustible book. It's not really a book in itself. It's a collection of 150 Psalms suited to many different occasions. And there might be a time to pray one and a time to pray another. And that's the great thing about it. It's more of a library. You can check out one of the Psalms 
in a, in a particular situation in your life. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So within those 150, there are groups of them, and the psalm that we have today is a part of one of those groups. We've talked about the five books of the Psalter before. Today, we're still in the, the fifth book of the Psalter here, but we have what is called a Song of Ascents. Psalm 120 is the first of those, and they continue all the way through Psalm 134. Each of these is a Song of Ascents. So talk to us about what that title might indicate. Right. Um, so so um, Psalms of Ascent, uh, the title itself is, um, nobody's been able to pin down exactly what it means, but we can make a couple educated guesses. I think we're closer to knowing what Psalms of Ascent mean than we are to knowing what Selah means, for example. Sure. But, um, but any, anybody who tells you they know exactly what Selah means or exactly what Psalm of Ascent means uh, is probably selling you something or just <laughs> ill-informed. Um, so there are a couple of possibilities that are probably most likely. One, a very interesting one, is that there were 15 steps in the temple, uh, Jerusalem temple, between the court of women and the court of the Israelites. So it's conceivable that these psalms, the 15 psalms of ascent, were associated with each step. And some people have speculated that maybe even the, the Levitical choirs stood on the set, steps and sang these psalms. Um, so that's a pretty cool idea, even if it's not true. Um, another possibility is that these were um, read or sung during religious pilgrimages up to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is about 2,800 feet above sea level, and it's really not that far from the sea. So it is uh, markedly higher than the territory around it. And we've talked before about every time you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem, and this has nothing to do with the direction you're coming from. You could be going north, south, east, or west, and you're still going up to Jerusalem because of its elevation. And you also then, of course, see in the Old Testament, and this is picked up on the New, in the New Testament, as the elevation of, of Jerusalem is associated with it being Mount Zion. The, the dwelling place of our God. So a very appropriate place to meet God is an elevated place. Um, so it's possible that these psalms were chanted or read or spoken during the pilgrimages from um, various parts of the region up to Jerusalem during the three great festivals of the year. So in both of those cases, it seems like the theme of, of worship comes into play, whether it's 15 specific steps in the temple or the idea of going up to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage for one of the feasts. In either case, there seems to be an element of worship. Is that one of the themes that shows up in the Psalms of Ascent? It is. There's no unifying theme, though, between those 15 Psalms, so that's interesting. Um, in this particular one, I don't see worship or praise particularly. We haven't read it yet, but you're going to see it's more of a prayer and a lament. Hmm. Um, so, so I think um, these, these 15 psalms actually capture many of the different circumstances of the, let's say, that were, were, was the pilgrims, right? Or if it were just the people in Jerusalem using the psalms. Again, it's they're occasional. They're capturing different situations that the people were in. Hmm. One other really interesting thing to think about is that, you know, we know from Luke chapter 2, Every year, Jesus went up with his parents to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and then we have the famous scene 
of him being there 12 years old. So it, it seems to me that uh, likely that Jesus went often on these festivals, and if these psalms, in fact, were used um, during the pilgrimage, uh, they would have been ones that our Lord Jesus Christ himself prayed. Yeah, which again provides that comfort that you were talking about at the beginning. You know, with that that thought that there doesn't seem to be any real unifying theme for the Psalms of Ascent, although there there are maybe words that do get repeated, some thoughts that get repeated, but there's still that wide variety. If it if it is the the case that it's for pilgrimage, then it almost becomes like a psalter within the psalter. That here's the Here's like the, the mini hymn book that you can take with you on your way to Jerusalem when you can't carry the big one. I, I know they didn't have the, the whole Psalter as a book, but it's almost almost has that sense to it, perhaps. Yeah, it's almost like, and because they, they tend to be on the shorter side, so they would have been ones that people could have memorized. So maybe it was like taking a, a mixtape or a playlist along with you. There you go, mixtape. <laughs> You probably still have some mixtapes from high school, Pastor. Uh, yeah, yeah, I still occasionally find a tape, and I uh, <laughs> don't have anything to play it on, but definitely have tapes. <laughs> so in terms of the, like, with, with the songs of Ascent, there, there is a variety. With Psalm 120 in particular, is there anything in terms of when it might have been composed or by whom it might have been composed that we can gain from the text itself or anywhere else in the Scriptures? Uh, we have zero. So it's conceivable that it was written after the exile when the enemies of God oppressed his people, because we do get the emphasis on the Gentiles being men of war and oppressing the people. But that would be speculative. So I'd say we're just op- we're flying blind here. Okay. All right. Well, with those things in mind, we will take a look at the text from Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war." That's our text for today. That's Psalm 120. So, Pastor Roth, give us kind of the bird's eye view of Psalm 120. How might we break it down into sections, stanzas? What's the structure of this psalm? So, um, the first sentence is what I would describe as a rationale for the rest of the prayer. And uh, it's absolutely crucial. In fact, it probably is the most important verse in the psalm because it is based on what God has done in the past. So in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me, indicates that there were previous, and a previous previous occasion, or perhaps occasions, in which the psalmist had prayed to the Lord, and he had delivered him. So I think that um, that also ties in wonderfully with the way we look at prayer as Christians. We base our prayers uh, not on some sort of um, idea that it's a... um, you know, a divine exchange, some sort of exchange with God, a quid pro quo. It's like not like a vending machine where I pop in the prayer and expect something in particular to pop out. Rather, we base all of our prayer on the fact that God has made us his children in baptism. We're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to him, and so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and on the basis of that filial relationship we have with him, what he has done in the past, namely made us his children, we then know that we can come to him as dear children approach their dear fathers in heaven, mm. or their dear fathers. So talk, talk more about that basis for prayer, why that's important for us. What, what happens if we lose that basis for prayer and, and fall maybe more into that more quid pro quo that you're talking about? Well, I think that, first of all, there's, there's a fundamental issue of, of the justification when it comes to our discussion of prayer. If we operate from a quid pro quo, I do this, you do that perspective, we are slipping into works of the law and then trying to use merits and worthiness as a way of bargaining with God. The small catechism excludes this possibility by saying, we are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them, right? As sinners, we have no claims upon God. We are beggars. In fact, begging is a great word for prayer. Um, in fact, Luther's last words are, we are beggars, this is true. So we come to the Lord, not with anything in our hands, but just opening wide our, our hands, expecting him to fill them with uh, grace, mercy, peace, and every good blessing. Um, I would also then say that um, if we approach prayer on the basis of the word of God, what he has done, what he has promised, then we can also sweep aside any sort of philosophical or rationalizing tendencies about prayer. Because strictly speaking, the attributes of God would seem to point in a direction of prayer not being useful or effective uh, at all. If you have an omniscient and omnipotent God, um, one who knows everything, um, I've gotten this one guy in, in Bible class. He asked it the first Sunday I was there 13 years ago, and he still asks it from time to time. You know, if God knows everything in advance, why do we bother to pray? Well, there are some, I'd say, pretty ingenious ways of answering that question, but they tend to become rather philosophical and speculative. Um, one of my sermons on prayer that I wrote years ago is called Prayer, Just Do It. And <laughs> the Nike slogan. Uh, it's because God has commanded us to pray and he promises to hear. And on the basis of all the things that he's done for us in the past, that's good enough rationale for why I can cry out to him in my time of distress, just as this psalmist does here. Hmm. So, and I think with all of that said, that not only does it prevent the pride and the works involved in prayer, and it sweeps aside any of those philosophical kind of way of words, it also then gives us a boldness in prayer to know, right? So it's not that, right, we know prayer isn't, I put the money in, I get the, the candy out, vending machine style God. But at the same time, like, we should have that boldness in prayer to know that when we do ask, as dear children ask their father, he's going to give us what is good. And there's, so it prevents the pride, but it also keeps us from timidity, and it actually gives us a boldness and a confidence when we go to God. Absolutely. There's a, a noun used in the New Testament, parasia, which we oftentimes translate as boldness or confidence. And um, in the secular Greek, it, it had more of a connotation of freedom of speech. And I think that's pretty cool because the, the idea is that God has given us freedom of speech before him, and the Psalter is a wonderful book to express that, because not only does the Psalter give us the opportunity to beg from God, 
it also gives us the privilege of complaining to him. And I think we pick up on some of that in this psalm, um, that we are lamenting and groaning. So I always tell people, you know, you can't really, without sinning, complain about God to each other. But you can complain to him. He invites you to cry out to him. And the psalms are full of that. In, in, in some places, they almost seem even whiny. But in our desperation, uh, the Lord loves us so much as our Father that he wants us to just, he wants to hear us speak. And that's what the psalms are about. Absolutely. So the, this psalmist cries out in that confidence, in that boldness, knowing what the Lord has done from the past, naming him one of his children, answering his prayers, he cries out. And that crying out in this psalm happens in verse 2. He says, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Talk about this prayer that the psalmist cries out. So um, Johannes Bugenhagen, one of the great Lutheran reformers, made the observation that while the psalms were um, originally prayed first by David or whoever wrote this particular psalm, this one's not attributed to David, um, secondarily, or I shouldn't say secondarily, afterwards, because they were written before Jesus came, but primarily then they are prayed by Jesus, and then they are prayed by us. So in this case, these, these words sound so much like something Jesus could have prayed during his trial, after his trial, because ultimately, what was it Jesus experienced when he was being tried? False witnesses breathed out violence against him. So... Um, in Jesus' case, of course, the Father says, his, the answer to his prayer is, I'm actually going to let them have their day. They are going to win this time. But in so doing, my will will be done, and you, you submitted to my will, and you are going to lay down your life for all these people. And so in this, the context of this verse, it's good to remind, remind ourselves that Jesus died for all sins, even our lies. And um, anyway, but these, these words then, I, I think you can't, you can never divorce the Psalms from Jesus, and it's useful then to think about a sort of a matrix in which you take the Psalms and you compare them to events in the life of Jesus and specific passages about Jesus. So I was thinking about 1 Peter 2, where Jesus, of course, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. There was no deceit. There was no guile found on his lips. So he is the one who actually fulfills the law in place of all human beings so that we then can be delivered from our sins. We've encountered the attacks of enemies through their lips and through their lies in other psalms that we've looked at during this month of July. We haven't looked at all of them, but, but many of them. Psalm 62 talked a little bit about the attacks of, of people with their, their mouths. Talk more about the nature of lies as, as a weapon of, of the enemy here in this psalm and, and throughout the scriptures. Well, the old saying is, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, and no, no falser words have ever been spoken, right? Some of the uh, gravest injuries to us occur when our reputation is harmed. So in the Eighth Commandment, the Lord, uh, each of the commandments is designed in such a way that it protects something protects me and it protects my neighbor. And the Eighth Commandment is about protecting my reputation for my neighbor and my neighbor's reputation for me. 
Um, but routinely, we have people slander us, libel us, say false things about us, imply things about us. I think this is on steroids today with um, online discourse. And as we all know, when a reputation has been harmed, it's very difficult to rebuild, and in some cases can't be rebuilt. So this is actually a really important psalm, even for us today, that it is just and right for us not to want to be slandered. And uh, it is not something that we should tolerate from our children. When my children say something bad about the other child, and then we, in, we investigate and find out that it was not the whole truth and nothing but the truth, um, we're pretty um, harsh with that because we want them to learn that speaking the truth in love about our neighbor is absolutely crucial. And then also, as the Catechism points out, we should defend him and explain everything in the kindest possible way. Hmm. So the, the matter of lying lips and a deceitful tongue certainly comes into play with the Eighth Commandment and the attacks that might come against us personally, our own reputation. What about lies uh, maybe more generally? And I, I'm also thinking about the, the Second Commandment, I think is another one that applies when it comes to the way we use words, truthful or not, not only about us directly, but the words about God. Talk about, again, not yeah. lies about only you or only right. me, but how lies are a weapon just generally. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in this particular verse, the psalmist has in mind more of the Eighth Commandment type of lying, but it the, there's a tight connection between the Second and the Eighth Commandments because they have to do with names. The Second Commandment is, of course, more important because it deals with God's name. Dr. Luther help, helpfully points out in the large catechism that the gravest violation of the Second Commandment is speaking false words in God's name. In other words, putting false words in God's mouth. And so this means that any false doctrine um, or misleading of what God has said or is intending for us to believe uh, can destroy our faith. So in, as we as Christians appropriate this psalm on our lips, one of the other things we're praying against is heresy, false doctrine, and attacks upon our faith from the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. Hmm. Well, and I think within the context of the Psalter itself, that thought within Psalm 120 is, is perhaps put there by the fact that we, and I know we didn't study this on Sharper Iron, but within the Psalter, the previous Psalm is Psalm 119, which is 176 verses extolling the truth, among yes. other things, of God's Word. That's an excellent point. Um, in fact, I think there are verses, um, this would be an interesting study, is to take the Songs of Ascent and, and see if there's some sort of corresponding verses within Psalm 119, which came right before. But there are some verses in here that you can, you can kind of juxtapose. So in Psalm 120, you've got falsehood. In, in Psalm 119, you've got the, tr the truth. So I, I think that that's an excellent uh, comparison. And, and if we're reading our Bibles in order, we should read one, Psalm 119 first. That's right. <laughs> you, you go ahead and write that research paper for us, Pastor Roth. Okay. Oh, thank you. That'll be my task for next time. <laughs> so, and, and thinking about, again, this deliverance from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue, and connection to false doctrine, then... Again, as you said, it does seem that, that within the context of the psalm, perhaps the Eighth Commandment is more on the mind of the, of the psalmist at the time. As we think about the way we appropriate it as Christians, 
this also then becomes a, a prayer against the, the way the devil would attack us with false doctrine as well. He's the father of lies. Exactly. And he's got his minions, and they're not cute little uh, animated creatures in movies. Uh, the devil's minions are um, his demons, and then those who have been caught up in his lies, because it all goes back to the garden and the big lie of Satan in the day that you eat of it, you will not die, and God doesn't know what he's talking about, uh, and you'd be better off with me. So um, that's the crucial thing, the first commandment. Um, is the Lord our God the one who, in whom we place our fear, love, and trust, um, or are we going to make peace with the devil and side with him? Uh, I mean, so then as, as we think about the psalm in this light, we do start to make those those catechism connections. I think think Dr. Luther often spoke this way with the psalms, that you can see the commandments in the psalms, you can see the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. So here, I mean, we're, we're considering the, the Eighth Commandment, the Second Commandment, of course the First. It seems like we're also considering the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed Be Thy Name. Yeah, if I could give a little plug to a book here, uh, it's called Reading the Psalms with Luther, and uh, it is published by Concordia Publishing House, and it is uh, uh, an outstanding book. It's got the full text of each psalm, and uh, and with the, the chant points if you want to chant it, and it has Luther's kind of introduction to each psalm, and then afterwards a prayer that ties together some of the themes of the psalm. And in Luther's approach to each of the psalms, he will connect it with the first, second, or third commandment, with the first, second, or third petition, sometimes the fourth petition. And so that's exactly the approach Luther takes. So again, reading the Psalms with Luther, it's an outstanding book. I have it on my bedstand, actually. Fantastic. So a wonderful resource for using the Psalter as Christians still today. We're going to keep looking at Psalm 120 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We are talking to Pastor Carl Roth this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, July 24th. We're studying Psalm 120 with Pastor Carl Roth. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we looked at the first two verses of Psalm 120. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist then continues with that thought of what should happen to those lying lips, to that deceitful tongue. And he actually begins to speak to that deceitful tongue. So in verse 3, he says, What shall be given to you? 
And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? And then it seems he answers his own question in verse 4. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Take us into this part. Yeah, but before we actually look at the context of the psalm itself, I, I, I'm struck when I'm reading and praying the psalms at how often I can use them on myself. And in this in this the preceding verse and in, in this one, um, we didn't discuss before how deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue could be something that I pray against myself. So we're always praying against the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature. And we are all prone to stretching the truth, withholding truth, um, deceiving. Um, so I think that, that as we're, we're going through this psalm, it's useful to think about ourselves as well. This is kind of the second use of the law, the theological function of the law of it. This, this psalm, even though it's not a commandment, actually holds up to us the expectation that our own lips should be um, speaking the truth. And, you know, if you think about the great blessings of Psalm 32, um, it's a man in whom there is no deceit. It's the one to whom the Lord has credited his righteousness. And the greatest deceit we can commit is saying, I am not a sinner. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right, so it's the, the enemies that are, are faced, and this is true throughout the Psalter, are not just the external ones, but we should also consider the internal one, the sinful nature that each one of us possesses. That sinful nature would be deceitful, that would lie to us, and so we pray against that as well within the Psalms. It's very helpful, and it, I think it does help us uh, to, to keep ourselves from pride as we pray these, these Psalms against enemies when we recognize that there's one dwelling inside of us. Exactly. Okay, well then, the psalmist goes on to explain what the deceitful tongue should receive in return, and it's the warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Um, so I guess the broom tree is a desert shrub that reaches as high as 12 feet, and its wood burns particularly hot and long. So it would not be very pleasant at all to have uh, heap heaping on our foreheads the glowing coals of the broom tree. And, of course, sharp arrows we know would be very painful. Right. That's right. So, I mean, talk, talk more about this part of the prayer, because I, I don't know if, if we would classify this as an imprecation mm -hmm. per se, but we are here, it sounds like, starting to suggest God, hey, here's what you could do to this lying tongue. Yes. H how do we pray these things as Christians rightly? Well, I think the um, one, one way to approach them today is to some extent to make them spiritual enemies, right? So, so we ask, especially against the devil, all bets are off, right? We pray that the Lord would inflict upon him um, maximum deterrence and even suffering because hell was prepared for him first and foremost. And as we pray out, come Lord Jesus, we're asking him to bring an end to this world of sorrow. But in the end, uh, there will be a resurrection of the righteous and punishment of the wicked. So there is a sort of end times element to each of these imprecatory psalms. Well, this is not a, this is, this is an imprecation, I think. This is asking the Lord to to punish his enemies. Um, so I think the end is in view. It creates a little bit of maybe cognitive dissonance in us when we hear Jesus say, "Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." 
But I think what Psalms like this remind us of the very real injustice that occurs in the world. And so the lex talionis, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life rule has never been abrogated. Jesus himself says those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. So men of violence in this world do deserve um, punishment, and that is what the um, sec—well, secular is the wrong word—but the um, civil righteousness uh, entails. So um, while we might not, in our justice system, use sharp arrows and glowing coals of the broom tree on on the wicked people who act wickedly, nonetheless, it is a very fair thing when when you've been treated unjustly to pray for vindication. And knowing full well that you might not receive that vindication completely until the last day, but it is not wrathful or wrong to expect just, uh, that justice be done, even in a civil sense in this world. Right. And I mean, this is something that the psalmist regularly pray for, is the Lord to work his justice, to set right that which we have made wrong, whether it's the wrong that we've committed or a wrong that's been committed against us. This is something that we should desire, is that the Lord would bring his justice. And I think that, as you brought out earlier, that, again, we are sometimes praying against the enemy that is within ourselves. That's helpful to keep us from becoming prideful. But that, that humility in praying these things shouldn't stop us from praying these things, from desiring that final vindication that the Lord has promised he will bring about on the last day. And if he gives that vindication now, that's, that's a good thing, too, that he would deliver his salvation, his justice to his people. Yeah, it's a very important to remember that Jesus, when he goes into the temple, purges it using, um, you know, a whip and overturning the tables. And so we do even see in the life of Jesus um, words that are trying to right con concrete wrongs in the world. And what was going on in the temple was absolutely unacceptable. And so he's the one who poured out his wrath against it. And so it's okay for us to pray that the Lord would, as Paul puts it in Romans 13, um, the, the government, I guess we'd say today, um, is the minister of God to execute his wrath upon the wrongdoer. In the, in the chapter before that, Paul said, that we should never avenge ourselves. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. In many ways, then, the psalms like this are the response of the Christian to having been wronged, is that we pray that the Lord would actually avenge them, and the way he tends to do that in the world is through a system of justice. So I'm glad you, you brought up Romans 12 and 13, because as, as you look at the language here of verse 4 particularly, the warrior's sharp arrows, and especially the, the glowing coals, uh, I, Paul doesn't mention the broom tree, but in at the end of Romans 12, he quotes mm. from the Proverbs, yes. and he, he brings up this matter in that context of vengeance belonging to the Lord. He quotes from, I think it's Proverbs 25, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. And, and as I was, was thinking about how this verse 4, how might we how we might think of this as, as Christians within our lives, that matter of, of the coals that Paul talks about and the coals that are, are talked about here, maybe there's a connection to be made. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's the old kill him with kindness method, right? Uh, the idea that we we, by doing good to our enemies, may in fact 
appeal to their consciences. I think that's what the heaping up burning coals on their heads means, is that it's, it's striking their consciences, uh, stinging it, uh, burning it in such a way that perhaps they would repent. And, and so ultimately, our, our, our prayer that God kill our enemies can be understood in a spiritual sense that the old Adam of our enemies be killed so that they convert. That's always the goal of the Christian church, the conversion of the sinner. But if they, like Pharaoh, for example, dig in their heels and harden their hearts, then it might very well be time for prayers, for, for the literal sense of these prayers, that those who murder and lie and cheat and steal face some sort of earthly retribution. But I, I think I appreciate you bringing that verse up because it reminds us then that our goal is always to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute uh, us so that their souls might be saved. And then ultimately, we might be able to be friends with them. So, and, and then in terms of the other part of verse 4, the warrior's sharp arrows, thinking about how that, that could apply for us as Christians— and the only reason I've been thinking about this is because it's the next psalm we're going to cover here on Sharper Iron. Tomorrow we're going to look at Psalm 127. And, mm. and Psalm 127, verse 4 says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. I, I don't know if there's a connection to be made. That's another psalm of ascend. I'm not sure if there's a connection to be made to the, the response that's given to the deceitful tongue, maybe passing the faith down to your children. I, I don't know if there's a connection to be made there or not, but it, it just struck me as I, just because, yeah, I, yeah. like I said, I'm thinking about these two psalms at the same time. Um, I think that um, the, the central point, and is fairly obvious, is that a warrior is fairly ineffective without his arrows. And so sure. you would not want to be one with an empty quiver. And you're going to get to that in Psalm 127. Um, and if you don't get to this point, the uh, I'm told that the average quiver could hold between five and seven arrows. So it okay. is an interesting thing to think about. Hmm. Yeah. So this is what the lying tongue deserves, the warrior's sharp arrows and glowing coals of the broom tree. The psalmist then continues in verse 5, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Maybe just before we mm. go on to the rest of those, talk to us about those two places that are mentioned there. Yes, they are not um, places I guess you'd really want to visit. So don't go to Expedia and try to book a, a trip to either one of them. Um, well, we don't know a ton about these places, but Meshach is usually assumed to be close to the Black Sea, and then Kedar is an area south of Damascus in the Syrian desert. So point number one is that these places are actually quite far from each other, um, and so no one person could really live in or dwell in both at the same time. That would suggest, then, that these are places that are reputed to be uh, Gentile strongholds that are filled with violence. So they're just not desirable places to be. Um, and, and so if this, in fact, is a pilgrim song, I, I think this would, would be informative, that the, um, the faithful believer in the Lord who is scattered in the diaspora or the dispersion might very well have to live in places, say if he's a trader, not traitor, but trader, right, a merchant, um, in places that are um, seedy. You know, port towns are not exactly known to be uh, bastions of morality. Mm. Um, and 
this then raises the question of, um, so you, you, you have the famous sayings of Jesus, or the famous acts of Jesus. You know, Jesus ate with sinners, right? And this was scandalous to the Pharisees. Um, and so you could have a romantic or sentimental view of what the Christian is supposed to do, as if I should just pack up my, um, my family and then move into the worst part of a town or some sort of very corrupt place. But um, you, you have to, that, that's, I call that a romantic or sentimental view, because first of all, we're not Jesus. So, you know, what he did might be an example, but there are other times um, we're not called upon to fashion a whip and drive people out of a, a temple, for example. Um, but there, we also have to recognize that when it comes to civil righteousness, there is uh, a, a tremendous downside for the Christian of being uh, when they are surrounded by wickedness, lying, and murder all around. In fact, without one of the reasons we pray um, for the government is so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and honesty. Oh. So without outward peace, and that that word comes up then twice in the next two verses. Without peace, we cannot have well-being, and I think it grieves the psalmist here that he is surrounded by unbelief, wickedness, and murder on every hand, and that is an intolerable situation for any human being to dwell with, uh, to live with for too long. Mm. I, you know, thinking about the life of Jesus, as you suggested, I, I think I would connect this less with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, and more along the lines of what he does when he enters into Jerusalem and he looks upon the city, mm-hmm. as Luke records it in Luke 19. There he says, of Jerusalem, he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden for your eyes. And he goes on to describe what will happen in terms of the, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But that's that sort of lament of Jesus as he looks upon the, the city that should have known what, what peace meant, and they chose wickedness instead. That seems more along the lines of what's happening here in Psalm 120. Yeah, exactly. He also will mention uh, in a similar context that the city of Jerusalem is the is known for being the one that kills the prophets that right. the Lord sent to it. Um, so um, we cannot just, um, you know, sentimentally think that we could tolerably live in a place just that's con- continually filled with wickedness around us and not be affected by it. So Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. So I think that the psalmist here recognizes that if he were to be around unbelievers for too long, continuously, then it's possible that it could destroy him. Mm. And, you know, to keep it also within the context of the Psalter, one of the previous psalms that we've studied during this month of July is Psalm 84, and it seems like this is almost the the negative side of, of what that psalmist said positively, in Psalm 84, verse 10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So he he puts it more positively there. This is really the same thing, just spoken from the perspective of the woe. Yes, or even Psalm 1, which sets the stage for the entire Psalter, um, that you want to be in the congregation of the righteous, not the congregation of the wicked. So, Mm. very good. Yeah, so so, to, to sojourn in Meshach, to dwell among the tents of the of Kedar, this is to dwell in the tents of wickedness, as Psalm 84, the psalmist says, woe to him. And, and you, I think, again, if, if this is the context of a pilgrimage, that then puts it into perspective that he's, 
he's recognizing that that longing that he has mm-hmm. to go to the house of the Lord where where he will not be surrounded by the wickedness and the, the wickedness within himself will be uh, made a, made a, there will be atonement made for that through the sacrifices there at the temple that's what he's longing to receive exactly and I, I think we can correlate this with our own lives as Christians um, you know Paul said you can't completely eliminate being around evildoers. Otherwise, you'd have to go out of the world. But when we gather together as the church, when we're gathered with our families, we tend to experience wonderful peace, certainly the peace that surpasses all understanding, but also concord and peace and unity and agreement and doctrine. Um, But nonetheless, we do have to pilgrim back out into the world, pilgrimage back out into the world, and oftentimes are surrounded by uh, Meshach and the tents of Kedar, but thanks be to God that each of us has this refuge uh, where we're able to come week in and week out and experience the Lord's peace, a uh, peace that surpasses all understanding. Talk, talk more about that nature of the Christian life. I think, it is it Peter in his first epistle addresses it to the elect exiles, or is that James? Maybe I actually I, think both of them allude to both, that, but I know, so, Pe- I know first Peter does. So yeah. talk more about that nature of the Christian life as, as one of, you know, dwelling, almost in exile, I think is the way the New Testament writers are putting it there. Well, yeah, I mean, Jesus says that you're the light of the world. If the entire world were light, then, of course, an additional light would be superfluous. So I think the implication is that we're lights shining in the darkness. And that's a great epiphany theme, right? Uh, the, the people that dwelled, dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. Um, so... You know, we are, we are chosen for a purpose. So it's not, as individuals, we're not an end in ourselves. Um, we are chosen for something. So chosen to choose life, for example, rather than death. And so being these lights of the world, we do have to go out into the darkness and shine the light out so that more people will be attracted to the light and perhaps will follow us as we follow that Word of God as a lamp shining in a dark place, lighting our paths. But as we do that, then the the challenge is to be in the world, but not of the world. Is I think that's the way Saint John puts it in his epistles. Well, I guess we could keep playing with that metaphor, and you know, on some level, if you are constantly surrounded by darkness as a person, it's possible that your light would begin to dim, and we we do see that with the the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins, you know, and so we need to continue to return to the church to have our oil replenished so that we can keep shining brightly. Hmm. Talk more about the, the use of the word peace here in verses 6 and 7. The, the psalmist is, is speaking that, he, you know, woe to him because he's dwelling among those who hate peace. He's for peace, therefore war. What is that concept of peace that he's talking about here? Well, I really like, uh, as, as we were introducing the psalm, I meant to say this, but um, I think this might connect back to the first verse. So he had been in distress. He called to the Lord. The Lord answered him. What did the Lord answer him with? What is the remedy for distress? It is peace and restoration. So I kind of think there's a connection there that he's experienced this distress before. The Lord's given him peace. Now he's experiencing all these lying lips. He's surrounded by murderers. And so now he needs to be restored to uh, peace. And he really is lamenting here at the end that while 
he is for peace. That is, the Lord has given him forgiveness of sins, justification. Again, uh, I mentioned Romans 5 earlier, where Paul says, um, because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the believers of the Old Testament had this peace. They trusted in the Christ who was to come. We trust in the Christ who has come. And so uh, I think what he's experiencing is that in this world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So he's this, this psalmist has experienced the peace of the Lord, but we're not taken out of the world, but have to continue to pilgrim pilgrimage through this world. Um, and he's asking for the Lord's help against those who hate peace. And of course, hatred is of the devil. He was not only a liar and the father of lies, he was also the first murderer and incited the, uh, the, the murder of, of Abel, and he incited Cain's heart to murder his brother. Um, and as First John beautifully tells us, you know, anyone who hates his brother who he sees cannot love God whom he uh, can't see. Um, so I think we can understand war as, as connected then to hatred and uh, discord, um, and we long then for restoration to well-being and assurance of the peace of God. Mm. So the, the war that's referred to there at the end, for the context of the psalmist, could have a very physical sense to it, kind of like we were talking about earlier, that the, the Eighth Commandment is maybe what he has in mind when it comes to the lies that he's ex experiencing. Perhaps there is physical harm meant to him. But again, as we think about this as Christians, there's also that spiritual aspect of the the warfare that Paul talks about that we need to be equipped for, say, in Ephesians chapter 6. That's exactly right. I mean, we, you know, if you read the, the large catechism um, explanation on the Lord's Prayer, I think it needs to be read as um, the Christian's life on the battlefield. Um, the, the amount of kind of military language in there is striking. And so prayer is one of the fundamental weapons of spiritual warfare. Also, of course, the Word of God. Um, but we, we, are, are, um, we delude ourselves into thinking that we have peace in this world when things are going okay. But as uh, the, I think it's Jeremiah, right? Woe to those prophets who say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Yeah. Um, and so the lying lips of prophets all around us are telling us, peace, peace, everything's good. You've got health, wealth, and prosperity, you know? But at that point, that's when you're most likely to forget your Lord. That's when you're most likely to slip into pride and thinking, thinking that you've accumulated these things for yourself. And so uh, we are at the uh, point then of falling. So constant reminder that we are under attack from our devil, the enemy, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But we can resist him firm in the faith. It's almost like the, the psalmist here is experiencing the reality that Jesus talks about when he says he didn't come to bring peace, he came to bring a sword. So it, it's almost like he, the psalmist is experiencing that division that comes about for the sake of Christ, and so he's crying out to Christ to actually give him real peace. And the sake of that division that does exist because of Jesus, it sounds like he's looking for real peace that can only come from Jesus. Yeah, Luther comments that you can either have peace with God or peace with the world, but not both at the same time. And so there is going to be this conflict, and I think a, a healthy discontent with the world, so that that um, we can never get too comfortable here, and we can never think that this is our best life now, 
But we, as we say in the creeds, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We're longing for those things because we know that the heavenly Jerusalem is where true peace is found. Mm, yeah, and that, that would be the ultimate song of ascent right there on the way to the heavenly Jerusalem. Pastor Roth, we've got about two minutes here in the morning. Help us to wrap things up on Psalm 120. How do we make use of this psalm as Christians? Well, initially I, I kind of looked at this psalm and thought, man, seven verses. How in the world are we going to uh, talk about that for, for a long enough time? But it's truly, uh, as with all of God's Word, um, there is, it's inexhaustible. We could probably spend another couple hours talking about this psalm and, and unpacking it. It is so rich, first of all, to recognize what has God done for you, not lately, but uh, every day of your life. So he has brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. He's made you his beloved child. So you know that in your distress, as a sinner, you called to the Lord for help, and he answered by justifying you, forgiving you, and making you his beloved child. On the basis of that, you know then that you can cry out to him in prayer anytime. Well, call upon me in the day of trouble, and which day is that? Well, that would be every day, wouldn't it? Yeah. Every day is the day of trouble. So constant prayer, constant meditation on the Word, uh, that's what this psalm teaches us. Pastor Carl Roth is pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 120. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. A pleasure. Thank you. Those around us have lying lips, a deceitful tongue. The way of the world is to speak lies, both about us and about the Lord. That lying lips also is found within us in our sinful nature. And so we pray for the Lord's deliverance, that he would give us his truth, and through the truth of his word to deliver us true peace in Christ. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 120, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.